The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is good to be with you this morning. It is good to be with you this morning, this Sunday as we approach Easter. This morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen new life? Maybe you're a kid and you, um, am I really loud, like, like painfully loud? I'm not? Okay. It sounds really loud up here. All right. Uh, maybe you're a kid and you've seen your mom's like body start growing bigger and you heard there's some big news and then one day all of a sudden you have a brother or a sister out of nowhere. Or maybe you're that mom and you felt your body, you felt life grow and all of a sudden you give birth to new life. Or maybe you're that dad, like I've been that dad four times, standing there when it happens and in the pain and the, the, the messiness of, all, of it all, all of a sudden you're holding in your arms a little boy or a little girl. Anyone who has had that experience knows life is a gift. Life is a miracle. Life can only be received. But received from where? In John chapter 5, John is going to tell us about a God who is the only one who has life in himself. God is the one who receives life, takes life from no one, but is in himself life. And John is going to point us to Jesus as that God who is life in himself with us as a human being. Let us open our Bibles to John 5, verses 1 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord and consider what it might mean for us today. This is the word of God, John 5, 1 through 30. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of people with disabilities used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, at walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. 
In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, this incredible story that Mike has set us up for and introduced us to, we've heard it. What does it mean? I want us to hear four things in this text this morning, and the first is simply this. Jesus comes after people who are looking for help in all the wrong places. Jesus comes after people looking for help in all the wrong places. In the gospel stories, there's a pretty clear pattern. Almost always, the person to be healed comes to Jesus. This is one of the very rare occasions where Jesus heals somebody that he comes to and initiates with. Why is that? Because this person already knows he already has a plan for getting well. He's got to get in that pool. He's got a game plan. He's been working this plan for 38 years. I got to be by the pool when the water gets stirred, and if I just have somebody to help me get in, I'll be healed. Why would the water be stirred? We don't know for sure. Maybe they thought that when the springs in the pool bubbled up from the bottom that it had special healing powers. Maybe they thought that an angel stirred the waters. What we can tell from the text is they thought that if you got in first, you'd be made well. So this guy doesn't initiate with Jesus because he's already got a plan, and it fixes on this water. But we already know better because already in chapter 1, John has shown us John the Baptist baptizing with water and said, that's good, but it's nothing compared to what Jesus will do. He will baptize you with God's presence. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Already in chapter 2, we've seen a groom who had lots of vessels to hold lots of water for purification. That's a good thing too, but it doesn't keep that groom from running out of wine at his party. And so God says, I'm going to show you something better. That water of purification turned to the best wine 
to save the party. Already in chapter 4, we've seen the woman sitting at the well that Jacob himself dug. Jacob, who gave Israel, the people of God, their name. That's a pretty good well. And Jesus said, that's nothing to the water that comes from this well, the living water. And here, Jesus goes after a guy looking for help in all the wrong places and saying, this water, this will not do. You are looking for a man to get you into the water. There is one before you who can do all of that and more with no water necessary. So because this guy already has a plan, Jesus has to go after him. It says Jesus saw him and he knew he'd been there for 38 years. This is just like Jesus. He's in Jerusalem for a feast. There's all sorts of who's who in Jerusalem at the feast. It's like he's in L.A. for the Oscars and he's got an invite and instead he goes to Skid Row. He's hanging out at the place where all the blind and the paralyzed and the hurting people are. And he finds someone who's been there an awful long time, and he says to him, do you want to be well? The man's so hung up, like Mike said, on his plan, he doesn't even know how to answer except for by giving him his game plan. I've got to get in the pool. Jesus says, get up and walk. And the man is made whole. The one who has life in himself needs no water, needs to wait on no man, but makes well, makes whole, saves at his own initiative and by his own power. James, Jesus comes after people looking for hope and help in all the wrong places. But secondly, Jesus warns us not to let anything keep us from missing out on him in the end. Jesus warns us not to let anything keep us from missing out on him at the end. Here's what I mean. The dude gets healed, and then Jesus disappears. He ghosts on him. He, like, heads into the crowd. So that when the Jews go, why are you breaking the rules about the Sabbath? Who told you to do this? He's like, I don't know. And then the dude who's been healed heads to the temple. And then Jesus goes and finds him. And he says to him something that strikes us as very strange, maybe even disconcerting. He says, see, Jesus says to the guy, you've been made well. Stop sinning so that nothing worse will happen to you. I'm like, ooh, I don't like that. Is Jesus saying that all suffering, any kind of physical illness, anything is the result of sin? No, he's not saying that. We know he's not saying that for all sorts of reasons. The best is that in four chapters, we have a story that John intentionally draws in parallel to this story, the story of a blind man. And in that occasion, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this blind dude or his parents? Got to be one or the other. And Jesus says, neither. So we know, and John knows, that physical suffering is not always, or especially often, the result of sin. So what does Jesus mean? Well, there's kind of two options. One is that Jesus knows that in this guy's case, this suffering that he's experienced really has been the result of his personal sin, and that's a possibility. The Bible does say that God can discipline us in our sin by all sorts of ways, and maybe he used this person's illness in this specific instance. But I was actually struck reading uh, Herman Ritterboss's commentary on John this week, who makes a different suggestion. He points out that what Jesus may be saying is, so you're physically well now. Don't sin going forward, lest something worse in the future happen to you. What would that worst thing in the future happening to you be? It might be missing out on Jesus. It might mean finding one's way straight to the judgment that this passage is going to end with. In other words, maybe Jesus isn't saying to the dude, hey man, you brought this on yourself, cut that out. Maybe he's saying, I've healed your body. 
Don't let anything get in the way of you becoming my disciple. Don't let anything get in the way of you getting the full wholeness and healing that only I can give. Some of you might think that's a stretch. Let me take you to that John chapter 9 with the blind dude. The stories parallel each other in every way. Jesus initiates. There's resistance from the Jewish leaders. You know how that blind dude ends? At the end of the blind dude story in chapter 9, he's not only a disciple of Jesus, he's worshiping Jesus. This guy who Jesus heals knows that the Jewish leaders are looking for Jesus to persecute him. And when he gets Jesus' name, what's he do? He goes to Jewish leaders and he rats Jesus out. As best as we can tell, he turns Jesus' name over to these Jewish leaders. In other words, his body is healed, but he does not become a disciple. I want to suggest to you that he lets something get in the way of getting God in the end. Precisely what Jesus had warned him about. Jesus says, I've healed your body. Now come for the full life that I offer. I wonder how many of us can relate to that guy. We don't know why he rats Jesus out to the Jewish leaders. It doesn't say. Presumably he had reasonable reasons in his mind. But can we not relate for many of us to having experiences, maybe not as dramatic as this guy, but in the past where we really felt like God was at work in our lives, where we really felt like God had, had moved in our life, like God had done something for us, and then later we wonder, eh, I'm not so sure. If you're like that, Jesus says to us about his story, not only do I come looking for those who are looking for help in all the wrong places, I warn them, don't let anything get in the way from finding me at the end. But thirdly, Jesus gives us this story because he wants us to know him for who he is. Jesus gives us this story because he wants us to know him for who he is. It's a weird text, and you probably felt it when I was reading it, because the first, like, 15 or so verses are, like, story time with Jesus. You know, it all goes on the felt board. Like, you know, it's very conducive to the kid's sermon, right? And then the Jewish leaders get mad at Jesus because they say that he's broken the Sabbath, and it goes in a totally different direction. And it's just like Jesus kind of monologuing. He's just like talking about all this kind of weird, crazy stuff. And you can kind of zone out in John when you hit that stuff, or at least I'm tempted to do that. But don't zone out. Because what Jesus wants us to do, Jesus wants us to know him for who he is. Watch how this works. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders say, they go after Jesus because, like, this guy is breaking the Sabbath. That doesn't bother us. We're not hung up on things like the Sabbath. But the early Christians were, and the Jews are, because Sabbath-keeping is one of the big Ten Commandments. So what's interesting is that when they say Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, but it's not a big deal, guys. No, he doesn't say, no, he doesn't, he doesn't attack the Sabbath law to counter that accusation. He starts talking about himself. And what does he say? Verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. It's like what? One, two, three, four, five. It's like eight words. Those eight words move the Jewish leaders from wanting to pursue Jesus to wanting to kill him. What happened in those eight words? They heard what we're likely to miss. Jesus was trying to tell them something about himself. 
See, these Jewish leaders would have all agreed with Jesus that you got to rest on the seventh day of the Sabbath. But they would have also agreed that there is one being in the universe who is not called to rest on the Sabbath, and that's God. Because God is always at work. He's at work holding the universe in place. If he took his hands off the wheel for one second, everything would fall apart. So every day, for always and ever, God is at work. So Jesus does not say, Sabbath, no big deal. Jesus says, God is always at work, and I am at work. And what he's doing is he's drawing the closest possible connection between the one God and Jesus himself. And the Jewish leaders get that, and they think it's blasphemy, and so they want to kill him. So now they're out for blood, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, you know, you really shouldn't try to kill me because that's breaking another one of those commandments that we're talking about. No, he starts talking about himself again. Why? Because he wants them and us to know him as he is. And in this second speech, in various ways, again and again, Jesus counters their charge that he is making himself equal with God and says, au contraire, I just am fully united with the Father in my identity and my action and my relationship. That's what all of those verses that spill out after verse 18 are about. In various ways, Jesus says again and again that he, the Son, and God the Father are completely united in relationship and in action. In verse 19, he says the Father and the Son do the same works. The Son only sees what his Father is doing and then does them. It's verse 19. In verse 21, Jesus specifies, God the Father is the one who raises the dead to life, and so I do that as well. That what the Father does in raising to new life, so do I. Jesus aligns himself with the Father completely in the power to judge. In verse 22, Jesus says the Father doesn't judge anyone because he's given judgment to the Son. But in verse 30, Jesus goes right around and says that the Son only judges in line with what he sees the Father doing initially. They're even the same in terms of honoring. In verse 23, Jesus makes clear that if you honor the Son, you honor the Father and vice versa. And if you dishonor one, you dishonor the other. Do you see what's happening here? They're saying you're, you're out of bounds. You're breaking the commandments. Jesus doesn't say commandments bad, me good. He says, I am so united to the Father that you misunderstand what I'm doing because you don't know who I am. Jesus wants them to know who he is. And who he is, is, as John will tell us explicitly in chapter 10, the only one who can say fully and finally, I, this human Jesus, and the Father, the one and only God, are one. And this is the story that we've been hearing in John since the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the one God, and the Word was the one God. This is the heart of what Christians call the Trinity, that there is only one God who exists from eternity past to eternity future, always and forever. It always exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is one of the crucial texts that helps the early church decide that those words that I just said are the best way to try to talk about God, because they picked up that here, what the Jewish leaders needed and what we need is to know who Jesus is 
for real at bottom. Why? Why do we need to know who Jesus is? Because fourth and finally, Jesus wants us to know who he is so that we can share in his life now and share in his life forever. Jesus wants us to know who he is, but because by identifying himself completely with God, he can make this incredible claim. I have life in myself. Go back to that experience that you've had with childbirth. Really think about it. Think about the miracle of life. And then here is one who grew in Mary's womb, who has the audacity to say, no one gives me life. I and the Father have it in ourselves. And the reason why I am here is to bring that one fountain of all life into your world so that you can have it to the full. Jesus has taken the life, the, the, the independent life, the, auto, the, the sourceless life of God and has brought it near to us in Jesus. Why? So that we might have life in the present and life in the future. This is why as soon as Jesus says, I have life in myself, he starts talking about resurrection. And you know, all those Jewish leaders probably believed in resurrection. They got that from Daniel in the Old Testament. They knew that one day God would take up residence on earth and that when he did, the people of God would be raised up and resurrected to renewed physical life and that they would inherit the kingdom of God forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Jesus says, yeah, you've heard about the resurrection. It has arrived in me. Because the resurrection then depends on someone who has life in themselves. And someone who has life in himself is standing here before you. And what that means for Jesus and for his contemporaries and for us is that we don't have to wait till the end of history to receive the full resurrection life of God. We can have it now. The categorically different life of the resurrection, of the new heavens and the new earth, of the new creation is made available in part to you and me because we can come near and take hold of Jesus who is resurrection life in himself. Because the body buried in the ground began to breathe on Easter Sunday morning. The breath of that resurrection life is yours today, if you will have it. And though for most of us, unless Jesus comes back today, physical death lies between us and that final resurrection, if we receive Jesus, we can know that one day, one day, we will hear the voice of the risen one even in our graves and rise to new life forever and ever and ever again. In a world that Jesus is not jettisoning or throwing into the trash, but that he is resurrecting, that he is recreating and populating that recreated world with you and me, remade, renewed, reclaimed 
purged of all the sin and death and destruction that haunts our daily lives. Jesus is the risen one, and he stands and I want you to see who I am. So you know that I am offering you life now, today, and life in the present, and I want you to know that this is the only way to receive life, and the only alternative to life is death. All, Jesus says, will hear the voice. All will be raised. Some, it's the resurrection that leads to life. And some, it's the resurrection that leads to judgment. Just as Jesus got face to face with that man who'd been healed and said, make sure you don't let anything lead you to miss it. He tells his audience then, and he tells us now, don't miss the life that I offer because it is the only life that escapes the judgment of death. If that's the text before us, what does it mean for us today? Three things. First, if Jesus comes looking for people who are looking for help in all the wrong places, we are encouraged to ask, where are we looking for help in all the wrong places? Where are, eyes, where are our eyes fixed on a plan that we are just confident is almost going to bring us through the finish line? We're just con if we could just find somebody to get us in the pool, if we could just find something to bring our—we've we, been sitting here for 38 years, but there's just one piece of the puzzle left, and if we could just get that, whatever that is, think about it. Think about your life project. Think about the plan that you fix on. Think about the water that you are hoping will heal. And there's just one piece of the puzzle. Whatever that thing that you're looking at, whether it's good or bad or somewhere in between, Jesus has a word for you. It won't do. It will not do. Whatever the pool is in your life, it will not satisfy. No matter how good the water, there is one and one only who has life in himself. And that means there is one and one only who can look you in the face and say, do you want to be whole and have the power and the authority to bring it to pass if you would but receive him? There is only one. Ask yourself, where am I sitting by the pool fixated on the wrong thing, missing Jesus for my plan. Secondly, if Jesus wants us to know him for who he is, it means we're going to have to recommit ourselves to knowing him as he is. If Jesus really wants, okay, remember when you were listening and you were like, oh, I love this part where the guy gets healed. And Jesus started saying all that crazy weird stuff and you zoned out. I know you did because I do too. We're listening to John in the car with my kids, and they laugh about how Jesus just goes on and on. You kind of zone out. And I'm like, that's confusing, man. Why is he talking like that? Go back to healing the people. That's the stuff we like, and Jesus won't do it. Why? Because he really wants you to know who he is. And if that's important, then the church has to reclaim something that, frankly, is not very sexy, at least at a church like downtown church. And I'm talking about theology. I'm talking about thinking about God. 
I'm talking about trying to understand who God is. And it's not very sexy at a church like Downtown Church because many of us grew up in churches that it was like all head knowledge, all theology, all dogma. We got so sick of that. You know, like, man, I'm so tired of that. It's all head stuff. We never get out the street. We got to get out and love our neighbors. And, you know, that's true. And I hope I felt nervous seeing all these guests here because you don't know all that love and justice stuff. That's my jam. I love talking about that. All this weird who God is, leave that for the weird. No. No. Jesus says the life of love and justice that the church has to offer flows from one source, and it is meeting God for who he is. And that means knowing, wrestling with the truth about him. It matters. It mattered to the church. The first first Christians wrestled with and argued and lived and died for this claim that Jesus is not just a particularly good prophet. He's not just a super excitable leader. He's just not a unique reflection of God. No, he is God. One God. Three persons. They lived and died for that stuff. They said nothing else follows if you don't get that right. And we need to learn from them because Jesus wants us to learn from them. Jesus wants us not to neglect love and justice and mercy, but to devote ourselves to the source of love and justice and mercy, which is to know God and to know God in order that we might delight in him. You know, like, I remember, like, Rebecca and I have been married for, uh, since 2008, uh, however long that is, 14 years. And, you know, like, I know her, people that you love, you want to know more about them. And all you married folk know, like, 14 years in, like, sometimes Rebecca will tell us a story, and I'm like, I have never heard that one, you know, and vice versa. We want to know about them. Why? Because knowing them leads to loving them. That's what Barnhart was saying. God wants you to worship him. You are made for that. And one way we worship God is by learning to understand what he is like. And what that means is that we've got to give ourselves to knowing God in scripture, in Sunday school, in community group, in these sermons, in the service. We've got to wrestle with the truth about God so that we would love him, so that our hearts would catch fire with love for him. So that we would be drawn to, we can't give up on trying to know who Jesus really is. Because Jesus won't give up on trying to tell us who he really is. It's the strangest thing in the world to say. If, if Christianity isn't really doing it for you right now, maybe spend some more time thinking about the deep, mysterious truths about God. But may I suggest, that's part of the answer here. If you don't love me, maybe you don't know me. Maybe you haven't gazed on the mystery of God, the only God, the maker of heaven and earth in human form with life in himself and in the power of the spirit offering to be with you, that same creator God. Let that mystery draw you to love and mercy and delight and worship. But third and lastly, if Jesus wants us to know who he is so that we can share in his life now and share in his life forever, we have got to grapple with this reality that Jesus offers us resurrection life and we can accept it or we can deny it. And if talking about theology isn't particularly hot at downtown church all the time, talking about judgment isn't hot anywhere. This is not my favorite thing to preach about. 
I don't love to talk about it. I'm tempted to downplay. I'm tempted to avoid it. I'm tempted to move on. And one of the reasons I'm tempted to those things is because, again, some of us came up in churches that were, like, obsessed with judgment. Like, some of us have been in churches where it was like every Bible verse said, for God was so ticked off at the world that he acted ticked off all the time, right? Some of our churches that we were raised in, like, drew these, like, they gave us, like, whole tours of what hell is like, right? They, they have the exact roadmap, man. They can tell you where people who do that are. And, and, and we are like, no, that is not, we don't, we, we didn't like that. So we left that and we came somewhere else. And I think that's right. The Bible says that God's mercy is a thousand times greater than his judgment. We're right to put the emphasis where God does. And the Bible doesn't talk about judgment. It doesn't give us a roadmap to hell. It doesn't give us these weird, like, fixations. But it does say that there is one source of life at the beginning. And there is one hope for life at the end. And you can have resurrection life right now and forever, no matter what. But you can miss out. And that judgment that's missing out is not like missing out on the steak and having to settle for the cheeseburger. It's like missing out on the life-saving medicine when you're in the last stages of a disease that's killing you. Because there is only one source of life, life in itself. And if you refuse to receive it, Jesus warns us of judgment. A judgment we don't understand, a judgment that alarms and confuses us, but a judgment that is real and that Jesus tells us about to say, come to me, come to me. Come to me. Find the resurrection life. You who are looking for life in all the wrong places. In me. Find it today. Find it tomorrow. Find it forever. The life that is fire burns within me as nowhere else. And I want to give it to you. Because I have it in myself. But you have to receive it. To hear this text this morning is not only to leave behind the things that distract us. It's not only to give ourselves to understanding the God who calls us. It's to receive the call and come to the life of the risen one. That is a call that lands equally on all of us. Would you today come to him? Would you today come to him? Would you refuse the relentless ways of death that dominate our hearts and our news cycles and our world and find in Jesus the resurrection and the life today, now, forever, always? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of the idea of life, independent. We are in awe of the idea that there is a being in the universe who can say, I have all life in myself. And all the beauty of life that we see around us is just the overflow, the gift, your gift, God, to the world. And we are horrified by the idea 
of anyone or any creature being cut off from that life that you have in yourself. John, you, you, Jesus, you promised us in your word through your apostle John that if you were lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. Jesus, would you draw everyone in this room to yourself this morning? We beg of this, Lord. We plead with you over this. Draw us to yourself. Give us the life that only you can give. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. And stretch out your hands and receive God's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you great peace now and forevermore. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you.